Welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Today we're going to have a lot of fun, so let's start today. I want to talk to you along the lines of the idea that every chair matters. Everyone say that after me. Every chair matters. So we're going to take our text today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. And I want you to read it with me, if you will. Everyone read it together. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, God, we come to you right now, Father. And we're so thankful for your presence that we sense in this place. We're so thankful for the opportunity and privilege to worship you. God, we thank you for the opportunity and privilege it is to serve you. You are our God. And thank you that, Father, you didn't make us mere servants. But, Lord, you said we have not been given the spirit of bondage again to being afraid but that we've been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So, Father, we come to you in that way today. Just Daddy, Daddy, hear our cry, listen to our voice, know that we love you, know that we care about you, and we need you in our lives. And everybody said, Amen. And you can maybe see it. I love this passage of Scripture. I've always loved this passage of Scripture, and it has to do with You know, evangelism, it has to do with sharing your faith. It has to do with becoming and being everything God intended for you to become and be. Basically, what this scripture is saying to us is that this is our role as Christ's followers. This is the role of the church. He, he, Jesus himself came and he communicated of himself that he was the light. He said, I am the light. And I shine in the darkness. The Bible even says that in the first of John, it says that the the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld him as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And earlier in that passage, it says that he was the light of the world and he shone in the world, but the world didn't understand him. They didn't get him. When he came to his own, they didn't get who he really was. And so he faced a lot of rejection, but he continued to do his ministry on the earth, preaching and teaching and healing and delivering and doing all the things that he did. Then he went to the cross and he took the penalty for our sin and he died on that cross, but he didn't stay dead. Thank God. The Bible says in, 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 in Corinthians that we would be the, 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 the most miserable of people if there was no resurrection. Thank God for the crucifixion, but hallelujah for the resurrection, somebody, because Jesus isn't some person who started a religion and wants us to follow it. Jesus is the person who died for us in our place and then rose again from the dead so we could have a personal relationship with him, which changes everything. Somebody say amen. Y'all, somebody say amen. All right, good. But then he went further. He didn't just say, I'm the light of the world. He said, you're the light of the world. 
He said, you are a city that's set on a hill. You are salt. And salt produces flavor. He goes on to say, and even as far to say, kind of a harsh thing to say in this passage of Scripture. He says, if salt loses its flavor or its savor, then it can't be salted again. You can't get it back. So if you lose it, you're, you're worthless. It just has to be thrown out. And what God is saying to us, and this Jesus was saying to the church, listen, you've got to be the light. You need to be the light. You need to be the salt. You need to be the city that sits on the hill. And really, if you aren't those things, you've kind of lost your purpose. That this isn't who God called you to be or what God called you to be. He is the light. And he wants us to be the light. So when we read this passage of Scripture, we're basically reading our mission statement. We're basically reading the organization of the church's mission statement. And it basically says this. Our whole role is to take this light that Jesus has given us and to express it to everyone we encounter. Literally, everyone we encounter. Uh, I, I said this at the funeral, and I said this in a message not long ago, but when my, fa- my grandfather was dying, it was very interesting. Like days before he passed away, they had to go into his room, and they had to calm him down because he had turned himself over sideways and was just weeping and crying for the lost. God, save the lost. God, revive your church. And it's interesting to me that When you get that perspective of a man on a deathbed, that's the perspective we should all have. Come on, somebody. You should have that perspective that I'm facing eternity at any time and at all times. You should have that perspective that, that, man, God's will and desire is more important than my will and my desire. Somebody say amen. So that's our role. Now, what is Jesus' attitude about his house and his kingdom? What is his attitude about it? How many think that whatever Jesus wants is what we should probably avail ourselves to if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ? Amen? So Jesus' attitude about his house and his kingdom, in Luke chapter 14, verse 16 through 24, it says this, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married and I cannot come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Everybody say that with me, so that my house will be full. Everyone say it again, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here's what he's saying. 
He's saying, he's literally talking about the Jewish people at the time, and he's giving an example. Look, I came to save the Jewish people. That's who I came to first, because those are my people. Those are the people God set aside for himself. So he was coming to show them, I'm your savior. But when he came, he came as a humble servant. He didn't come as a king of kings or in appearance anyway. So he didn't look like they thought he would look. His agenda wasn't their agenda. And so it confused them, and they didn't follow him. They rejected him. And really, if you read the gospels what you find is there were people in a power structure in the establishment of religion in that time that literally the reason they rejected Jesus was less about his messiahship and more about their uh, uh, fear of losing their power that's literally what they were afraid of I mean how else can you explain the Sanhedrin knowing that Jesus resurrected from the dead were told by the witnesses we were there, the people standing guard over the tomb a bright light shone we fell down they said you run out of here we'll tell everybody that you were attacked and 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 his body was stolen they knew he raised from the dead yet they wouldn't acknowledge it why because they didn't want to lose their power and isn't this the struggle that we all have and so what Jesus was saying is, we, I've invited you, but you won't come to me. I've invited, and I believe, not, I don't want to take this tack on this series. This is not what it's about. But I believe that's kind of the place we're living right now spiritually in the world, even among believers in the church. It's like God saying, I'm inviting you to a higher level. I'm inviting you to something more powerful in your life. I'm inviting you to a greater thing in your life, but you won't come. And there's going to come a point where Jesus said, I'm going to invite someone else. And so that's the part I want to look at is that he told his servants, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in. So he's again giving us, validating the role and the purpose of the church and the role and the purpose of the church is to be the light, to be the city, to be the salt. And that's our whole occupation. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus went to heaven, he literally said, occupy until I come. And what what did that mean, occupy until I come? It meant you do my occupation while I go. In other words, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to empower you to occupy, do my occupation. What did I do? I loved people. I shared the love and hope of, of God. I taught them the word of God. I prayed for them. I healed them. I delivered them. Now, since I'm not here and I'm sending the Holy Spirit, you do what I did. And I think over the years, we've kind of, we've kind of forgotten the role of the church and the church has become more of a consumeristic type thing where we are coming to get what we can get out of the church experience, not realizing that we're not just going to church, but we also are the church. And that the church is supposed to be expressed through us, not just on Sundays. That's the worship of the church. But the light of the church is to be expressed Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And And it starts with your children and your grandchildren. And then it moves out to your neighbors and to your friends and to your associates. This is the role of the church. And so what is God's desire for his house and his kingdom? That it be full. Our whole goal in life should be to 
to dismantle hell and to populate heaven. That's our whole goal. I want, I want to take a whole bunch of, I want heaven to be crowded. Now it's impossible for heaven to be crowded because it's so expansive. You could put billions and billions and billions of people in heaven. It would still be expensive. There'd be plenty of room, but let's do our best to fill it up. Let's do our best to have God have to create more heaven. Let's do our best to say, God needs some more mansions built up in heaven because we're bringing some more people with us. That's the role of the church. And it's the heart of God. John chapter 3, verse 16, what does it say? Quote it with me. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him. Stop right there. That is the operative word, whoever. His goal is that everybody be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, it says, This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He said right there, I want all men. Everybody say it with me. All men. Now, that means mankind, not the gender man. So I want all men to come to heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, we can't affect that. We can evangelize, we can sow seed, we can pray prayers, we can do all of that, but we can't give the increase, only God can give the increase. But there's no increase to be given on no seeds planted. Are you hearing me? There's no increase to be given on no seeds planted. If we don't plant a seed, there's nothing to increase. So God's job is to increase, our job is to plant. God said, I want everybody to be saved, which translates into Everybody needs a seed. Are y'all, come on, wake up in this uh, Presbyterian. We're not Presbyterian. We're, I'm sorry. One of the Methodist ladies told me the other day, she said, I love your church, but y'all stand up a lot. <laughs> Man, I just got nothing today. Some of y'all are just like, I'm, I just, can you get this done, please? So what I want to talk to you about in that sense of all and every. Every chair matters. And the first chair that matters in this house is the most important chair. I remember back in the day when the pastors used to sit on the stage. Y'all been preachers long enough, I mean Christians long enough to know that, where pastors used to, that's the most awkward, annoying thing in the world. I used to sit up there thinking, why are we sitting there? Everybody's staring. What is this? And I think it was just a way to honor pastors and make them, you know, in people's eyes, feel bigger and, and, and better. But they're just humans. They're just people. They're called by God, and that's good. But I remember when we used to have those chairs. But there's no, you don't see any chairs up here for pastors. We're not trying to get anybody's ego. We're not trying to make everybody feel bigger than everybody else. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not what ministry is about. We're here to serve, right? That's what ministry is about. So, but there is one chair that is elevated above all other chairs. Because the, most, the person we want to attract most to this place is Jesus. We want to attract God to this place. I don't want to come to church one time if God's not there. I don't want to come to church. It was like Joshua said when God said, listen, you guys have worn me out. You can go ahead and go up into Canaan, but I'm not going with you. In other words, my tangible presence, I'm not going with you. You go by yourself. Joshua said, I'm not going anywhere unless you go too. And that's how I am. I don't want to come to church. I don't want to do small group. I don't want to have my daily private devotions if God is not there. And the Bible says where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. But there's something 
something that attracts God. Worship attracts God. Praise attracts God. When we come in and we're lackadaisical about our praise or we're lackadaisical about our worship, or the worship is more, oh, I hope they play that song I like, or it's more about the people standing on the stage, or it's more about thinking that we're the congregation or we're the audience. You're not the audience. When we come together to worship God, you're not the audience. But I'm sitting out in the chairs and y'all are sitting up on stage. That means you're the performers. We're the audience. No. No, no, no. There's only one audience here. God. You're actually the performers. We're not here to perform But you're actually the ones doing the performing. It's not these guys up on stage singing and using their talents. This is about you lifting up your hands. This is about you lifting up your voice. Listen, the Bible says when we worship God like that, it's like a sweet-smelling savor to him. But I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. What does your comfort have to do with anything? Come on. Do you want him here or not? Because the Bible says God inhabits the praise of his people. If you want God's tangible presence to show up, just start praising him. I mean, come on. Even in your personal experiences, when you start moaning and groaning and crying and complaining over things that are going hard, what if you still, just instead of doing that, you ask some people to pray with you and you set your faith and then you just start praising his name. God, you are my healer. God, you are my deliverer. God, you are awesome. God, you are powerful. Listen, you want God to sit in a seat in your house, start praising his name. Start giving him some attention. Start making him first. Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's a chair for Jesus. And we want to attract the presence of his spirit first and foremost. But if you look through the gospel of John, you're going to see there's a chair in this church, in the house of God, for just about anyone. John chapter 3 there's a chair for the religious seeker. Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he was saying, tell me about it. I know you're a great teacher. And Nicodemus said, oh, it's much more than that. I mean, Jesus said, it's much more than that. He said, you have all these rules and laws and, 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 and systems, but he said, listen, you can't be, have eternal life if you're not born again. Nicodemus said, how do you, what, I'm an old man. How do I go back into my mother's womb? He said, no, you have to be born of the water and the spirit. A lot of people walking around, they're cultural Christians. They're doing the Christian stuff, but they don't know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. They haven't been regenerated. Their spirit man hasn't been made new. Are you hearing me? That's what it takes. The Bible says that's what it takes. And there's nothing you can do to earn that. It's God's Holy Spirit attaching himself to you and saying, if you trust me as Savior and Lord, if you believe I'm God of eternity, if you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose again from the dead, and you're committing to follow him, Holy Spirit touches your spirit and makes it come alive. And then not only that, he resides in you. He regenerates you, or it could be said he regenerates you. He gives you a new set of genes, his genes, instead of those human genes you had. Are you with me? In John chapter 4, we see that the relationally broken and sexually promiscuous are allowed a seat in the house. Jesus meets 
this woman at the well, we call her, because we don't know her name, but she was a woman that had struggle after struggle after struggle with sin and sexual promiscuity and relational upheaval. And finally, to the, to the point that she just gave up on marriage, she'd been married five times, and she was just living with the guy, and she meets Jesus in that moment, and hallelujah, gets a relationship with him, gets a revelation of who he is, and God changes her life forever, and she begins to evangelize her whole community. There's, there's a place, there's a seat for her. John chapter 5, the self-perceived victim. Oh, we got a lot of those, don't we? John chapter 5, we got a lot of people in the world that have victimized themselves. They're the victim, always the victim. But you know, even people like that have a seat in house. You know why? John chapter 5 tells us Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda. This man had been sitting here for 38 years. He was crippled all of his life. And there was a legend that said when the waters were troubled, if you got down in the waters, you'd be healed. But only one person could get that healing. And Jesus walks by and he asks a most particular question. He says, do you want to be well? Now, that seems ridiculous that I would have somebody drag me out here and lay me down and, 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 and to just have a chance to get into the trouble. What, that sounds ridiculous that you would ask me the question, do you want me, do you want to be well? But it's a, entirely appropriate because the man was living in the pity of his life. And it's obvious because how does somebody carry you to that spot and lay you there but doesn't stay around long enough to put you in the water? He said, I have nobody to put me in. And every time I try to get down there, somebody gets in my way. Blaming, blaming, blaming. I'm the victim. Everything is bad for me. And Jesus asked him a question, do you want to be made well? And he said, yes. And he says, so get up. And heals him completely. And he gets up. There's a place in the house. Now, it's a good thing that God loves us where we are, but here's the powerful thing about Jesus. He never loves us just where we are, but he loves us enough that he wants to put us in a better place. So, yeah, you might be a victim today, but God wants to make you a victor tomorrow. John chapter 11, those who need comfort and those who are facing insurmountable odds. The, 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 the sisters of Lazarus, their brother died. They said, Jesus, come and heal him. You can heal him. And Jesus didn't come purposefully. He waited and, G- and, and Lazarus dies, so it's over, it's final, it's fatal, it's through, it's done. There's no hope for this situation. So he's got an impossible situation, and they're broken and destitute and devastated by this broken situation. But there's a chair for people who are broken and destitute and seemingly have impossible situations. There's a chair for them in the house of God. Why? Because Jesus is never through, and Jesus is always hope. In Jesus, the miraculous can happen. In Jesus, things can change. The poor man and Lazarus. There's, there's a chair in the house for everyone. Someone, if you're financially uh, 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 well off or if you're as poor as a church mouse, it, I don't know what that even means. I've just heard it said. I, I, I don't know, but I, I can tell you this. I, I've heard poor as a church mouse, quiet as a church mouse. Are, my, are mice in the church different than they are? In, anyway, so you could be poor. You could be wealthy. There's a place in the house for you. Look at the man Lazarus that Jesus talked about. Everybody quotes it as a parable because it talks about hell and they don't want that to look at that as a reality, but he never ever says it's a parable. He never points to being a parable. He 
openly talks about parables in every other story he tells. But this story, he doesn't call it a parable. And he says there was a, a, a poor man that sat outside a rich man's house. And no one loved him. No one cared for him in this life. But angels hosted him into heaven. And the rich man who did not know God went into Hades. And, and there's a whole interaction there. But the, the reality is there's a place, there's a seat for the poor man. And there's a place and a seat for the rich man. You say, well, the rich man went to hell. Well, not because he was rich, but because he rejected in this life God. But there was another rich man. They call him the rich young ruler. He was a leader in the community, and he was wealthy. And Jesus met him, and he said, what do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you need to, you need to, you need to follow the commandments. Because, again, they were under the Jewish law at that point. Follow the commandments. He said, I've done all the commandments. He said, what else can I do? And it wasn't God saying that everyone should take a vow of poverty. It was God speaking specifically to him. And saying, there's a problem, you have a problem, and the problem is your money. Your money has become your owner. You know, it's okay for you to have money. It's not okay for money to have you. And there's a difference. And so here he is contemplating this, and he just can't do it. I just can't do it. Because Jesus said, here's what you need to do. Go give all that you have to the poor and then come follow me. In other words, what Jesus was saying is trust me. I can take care of every area of your life, even your finances. Are you willing to give everything to me? And the Bible says the rich young ruler turned and walked away. And here's something very interesting. It doesn't just end there. It says, and Jesus was sad. Jesus was grieved that he didn't get it. Now, there are some theologians that believe that that young, rich, young ruler became Barabbas, or Barnabas, excuse me, Barnabas in the New Testament, which was one of the most generous believers in the New Testament. There's a place for the poor. There's a place for the rich. And then there's even a place for those who've denied him. There's there's a place for people who didn't have enough courage to stand by him, and they denied him. There's a place for them even in the house because look at Peter. Peter said, I'll never deny you. No way. I'm not going to do it. Jesus said, yes, you will. All of you will abandon me. Peter said, no, I'll never do it. And then he ends up doing it, and he goes away and weeps bitterly. But what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, Go tell the disciples and Peter that I've resurrected from the dead. And he brought him right back into the family. And Peter became the gospel trumpet in the New Testament. He was the man. He was the leader of the New Testament church. We, we may see the apostle Paul that way because we have the advantage, uh, advantage of all the things he wrote. But they didn't have the advantage of all the things Paul wrote. Those weren't even considered canonized in scripture until like the fourth generation or first fourth century. So th- th- the church was following the lead of Peter and Paul as well, but not to the level that we think. And Peter became this great force for God. Why? Because there was a seat. There was a chair for everyone. There's even a chair for those who've betrayed and, 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 and attacked God. It's sad to me that we live in a time where that's true today. That there's a lot of people, they don't even realize they're doing it. I, I really believe that. I believe that's why Jesus said on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't realize what they're doing I think there's a lot of people that are following certain ideas and certain philosophies and certain ideologies 
Because there is a purposeful shift in our culture that is not led by some human being. It's led by a spiritual entity called Satan trying to destroy uh, the United States of America and the Western world so that the things that have happened out of this place that are good will stop happening. That the church will be affected and impacted. But we can't believe the lies of the devil. Come on. And when there are people who defy God or even attack God, we need to see them not as enemies. They're not enemies. They are children of God. They just don't know it yet. Have you ever had a kid that got sideways with you? I was one of those kids that got sideways with my parents. And had they given up on me, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd likely be in jail or dead. But I'm not. I'm standing here. Why? Because they didn't give up on me. Let's stop looking at the world like they're supposed to know what we know. Like they're supposed to act like we act, some of us. That they're supposed to do like we do. No, they don't know Jesus. Come on. We got to give them Jesus. Well, they hate Jesus. They don't know if they hate him or not. They're waiting on someone to give them a reason to love him. Are you with me? So there are some defined roles for the church. And the first is is to kill all crickets you see. Somebody online is going to hear that. They're going to say, what is he talking about? Defined roles of the church are, number one, intercede for who the chairs represent. Every one of these chairs represents somebody that broken-hearted person, that person who may be up and out or that person who's down and out. It may be be someone who you love and you're close to. It may be someone you just met. But every every chair represents a soul, and we have a responsibility to that chair. I want you to look around at chairs beside you that don't have someone in them. And I want you to ask yourself, why is there not someone in them? And then I want you to further ask yourself, how many people have you invited to set in them? Because every one of those chairs represent a potential brokenhearted person could have their heart healed. Every one of those chairs present, uh, represent a person who is going to hell. It is a reality. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there is a hell. It is a reality. It's not somewhere God wants to send mankind, but it's something that judgment requires if you do not receive him. He loves us so much that he's been l- just so patient and so kind. But the church has got to get urgent in the midst of his patience because we're we are not being urgent enough to say what does this chair represent and what is my responsibility to this chair and here's your responsibility number one to intercede our first responsibility is to intercede for who the chairs represent it's prayer is prayer for the lost is so powerful and Jesus prayed for the lost he prayed for you before he even before you even born, before he even thought about. He prayed for you. The Bible says when he was praying for his disciples and praying for those who existed at that time, he began to pray for those who hadn't heard yet. That's me and you. He was praying for us to come to the knowledge of Christ. I remember I had a friend uh, years ago and he was so lost at one point he even tried to commit suicide and he was just a devastated young man and we just a bunch of us guys who had just gotten saved and really committed our life to the Lord and we're we are seeking the Lord and we just got it in our mind we are going to 
absolutely get this guy into church. We're going to get him saved. We're going to win him to the Lord. So we started witnessing to him. I mean, we'd go out, we'd go out and eat with him, and we'd let the conversation go there. We weren't heavy with him or anything like that. He was our friend. So we're just talking about Jesus and praying. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And, and, and we just, it almost became a joke. And we just, we just went after him. One time we had a revival, and he came to one service, and he's like, I can't, I'm going to not come anymore. I just keep sweating. I just keep breaking out in sweat. It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he knew he needed God in his life and it just persisted and continued like that and I just one time I just got desperate and I started praying God I want you to every time he wakes up in the morning I want him thinking about you I want him thinking about eternity when he goes to bed at night I want him thinking about what would happen if I don't wake up in the morning when he's going along his day during the day I want you to send somebody by him or I want you to send your Holy Spirit to him and I want you to just minister to him cause him think about his life and purpose and destiny. Can, can I tell you something? That is exactly, that is exactly what happened to him. A few Sunday nights later, I'm at my job. I'm a young man. I had to work, uh, and I still have to work way too much. And I, I, I was working a secular job. I hadn't joined into ministry occupationally yet, and Janae worked at Kmart. I worked at Walmart, so we were walling Kmart. And we just worked our tail ends off. I had several jobs, but I worked there. And, and, and on Sunday night, I hated it, but I had to be at work. And I'd been to church that morning, and we'd prayed at church that morning, Lord, save him, save him, save him. And, and that night, they come running in. A whole bunch of our young people come running in and say, David, you're not going to believe it. He got saved. He gave his life to Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. And then he gave, got up and gave a testimony. They said, what happened to you? And he said, man, every time I got up in the morning, I was just thinking about God and about Jesus. Every time I went to bed at night, I would think, what if I died? And I mean, he literally testified my prayer. Powerful thing, prayer. And it ministers to the lives of people because when we go to prayer for those chairs, I want you, here's what I want you to do. Everybody look at the chair next to you. If it's empty, find one that's empty, look at it. And I want you to say to yourself right now, I want you to commit, I'm praying that that chair gets filled. I'm praying for whoever that chair represents, that it's filled up, that, there's, there, that there's, we're having to put out more chairs and we're having to do more services. And we're having to do, why? Because people are getting saved because we're praying them in to the kingdom. Listen, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say something that might sound challenging to you, but if your Christianity doesn't involve you having a burden for people who don't know Christ, I'm not sure if you really understand your Christianity. I'm not sure if you really understand what God did for you if you're not urgently needing other people to experience that. The second thing is invite. Invite them to sit in their chair. There's a seat for everyone at his table, but a person has a choice to sit there. However, how can they make the choice to sit there if they're not invited to sit there? And the third thing is initiate. Initiate the discipleship process that begins with the seat in that chair. At the end of that video, it talks about, it, it, it talks about the, the chair being the future of someone's life. It talks about that chair being someone's future. Sitting on that chair, how it could change their future, it could change their life. 
Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, the very end of the age. This is what God said for us to do. Are we doing that? Today we just have to ask that question. Are we doing that? Discipleship is a relationship that starts with connection and it progresses to growth and it inspires those being discipled to go and do this same thing with other people. That's how the kingdom of God grows. We don't have the ability to make it increase. God has the ability to make it increase. But we have the responsibility to sow the seed, to water the seed, to cultivate the soil so that God has something to increase. And the way we do that is by going after people who don't know Christ, introducing them to Christ, and then helping them grow on their spiritual journey. So we have a a role and a defined role, and that's to intercede for the lost, to invite the lost, and to initiate the lost. There's a chair for them. So the question then is, what chair are we setting in? And we're going to talk a little bit about this next week, but are we setting in that savory salt chair, or are we setting in that flavorless salt chair? A person who brings the flavor of God into every situation is the salty Christian. Every situation they bring God into it. God gets in there somehow. You might even have people say to you, man, every time you talk about God, that's because I love him, because he's awesome, because he's changed my life. I mean, I'm not apologizing to you. God, save my soul. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. Who are you that I would apologize for loving Jesus and bringing it? That's a salty Christian. Or are you a person who quietly knows God silently? Man, my religion's a personal thing. There's nothing in the Bible that says your religion is your personal thing. Nothing. Number two, a light on the stand or a light covered by the bushel. A person who shines the gospel for all to see, continually turning the light on in the darkness or... A person who has the light but covers it because of the overwhelming darkness. I want to just really quickly give you an example here of that. Can everybody see what I'm doing? So Jesus talked about no one takes a light and puts it under a bushel. We should have lit these before. There we go. So why would you take a light and then cover it up? Um, So in Jesus' day, obviously, I think you're aware of this. There was no electricity. How many understand that? Progress sometimes isn't always good. Sometimes it's negative. Sometimes it takes us to a place we shouldn't go. And I'm doing this as an analogy, not real. I'm thankful for electricity. Somebody say amen. How many of y'all thankful that air conditioner coming out right now? Some of you are like, a little too much, a little too much. Listen, he said, why would you take a light and light it and then cover it up? Why would you take a light and light it and then cover it up? Because that makes no sense. Because in Jesus' day, you either lighten your house or you weren't. You turned the light on, you lit the candle, and you were lighting your house, or you weren't lighting your house. So it made no sense 
that you would light the candle and then put a bushel over it. So he's making an analogy, a teaching analogy. He's saying, look, we're made to shine, not to cover the shine. Stop covering the shine. Stop shattering the shine. But here's what we've done. We haven't covered it up. Let's hope that these went out for my analogy. Said, yeah, they did. We haven't done that. Like we just shut the light off. But now, see, light was utilitarian then. In other words, you turn the light on because you couldn't see. But progress and electricity causes us now to use light for effect and aesthetics. It's not just about lighting a room so you can see. It's about the way the light makes you feel. It's about the way the light looks in the room. Right? So to Jesus, it was all or nothing. But what we did is we did exactly the opposite. We took our light and put a bushel over it. Except it's not a full bowl that puts the light out. It just makes the light more easy to handle. So what we've done is we've put ourselves in God's spot and say, yeah, God, but I don't want my religion to be obtrusive because if you take this little shade off, I don't know if I have time to do that. Yeah. If you take this little shade off, that's a little bit too harsh to look straight at. So we can't do that. Let's put a shade over it so it's bright, but not as bright. Because now we're not talking about it's on or it's off. We're talking about it's on, but, you know, looks okay. It's on, but it's not too harsh. It's on, but, you know, you might know it's on, you might know it's not on. My light, my room is dark, but I don't want it to be totally bright. I just want to be a little bit bright to make the room look better than it does. Are you getting what I'm saying? But God says this. It's either on. Or it's off. So when you put a shade on it. You might as well just turn it off. See, I think we somehow in our minds got this idea. I think we got this idea, church, that it's our role. The increase is our role. And, and so we started saying, well, I want to use different methods. And I hear Christians tell me that all the time. Well, I, you know, I just want to come. I don't want to come off too hard. And nobody wants to come off too hard. Jesus didn't come off too hard. But we don't want to shade the light. Why are we shading the light? The light is not ours to shade. And the moment we start shading the light, we're literally saying to God, yeah, I really want to be saved and I really want to go to heaven. But as far as everybody being involved in the knowledge of my life as a Christian, yeah, let's just kind of cover that up a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Just so I still have the look and I create an aesthetic in the room, but I'm not really chasing any darkness away. Are y'all with me this morning? Are you seeing it this morning? Are you hearing it this morning? So the question I have for us is, if we are in one of these seats, and we are today, if one of these chairs belongs to us, is our chair a light on a stand, or is a light covered by a bushel? Have we become aesthetic Christians instead of light-bearing Christians? What is that shade? What is that shade? It could be all kinds of different things. Well, being lukewarm as a Christian, not reading or studying much, 
When the subject comes up, we avoid it with all we can. We allow ourselves to be shaded by those people in our life who aren't really following Christ, or maybe they say they are, but they're really not. And then we allow our life to be shaded by their shade. It could be all kinds of different things. But Jesus said, it's either on It's either on. Or it's off. You say, well, that's black and white, and I'm more of a gray person. Well, you better get out of the gray. The third thing he said, we are is a city that sits on a hill. Now, are we a city that sits on a hill as we sit in our chair in this church today receiving the, the worship, receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Word of God, receiving communion together? Are we sitting on this chair and are we saying, I am a city on a hill? You can't miss me. You can't miss my Christianity. You can't miss the fact that I want you to be a Christian. You can't miss the fact that I'm going to invite you to church. You can't miss the fact that I'm going to love you no matter what. You can't miss the fact that even when people are ugly to me, I'm kind to them. And even when situations are hard, I'm walking in faith. And even when things are complicated, I know my God is going to make me get through this problem. You can't see that clearly in my life. Are you the city that sits on a hill? Or are you just another city in the valley? A person who boldly proclaims the word of God is the city on a hill. A person who remains quiet and unseen is a person in the valley. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be an extrovert. And I'm not saying you got to shove the Bible down people's throats. Jesus didn't do that. But Jesus wasn't invisible. Amen. Jesus wasn't invisible. He was clearly seen for who he was. And sometimes he did say some things that might feel a little bit harsh. Like, you guys are serpents and snakes. Who? Right? Truth, love, light, salt. Man, when you get around people, the flavor of God should get all over them. That's one thing we should ask ourselves as we go through this series. What flavor am I? Every chair matters, not just the adult chairs, not just the kid chairs, not just the teenage chairs, not just the religious chairs or the sinful chairs or the confused chairs, but all the chairs matter. Every single person matters to Jesus, and he loves them. He loves them with all of his heart. He loves them so much. And he didn't create, he, he created a plan to save them. That's how much he loved them. He created a system to connect them. He created a, a life to grow them and equip and inspire them to not only receive this gift, but to give this gift to someone else. Today, I just have one question for you. We know every chair in this room matters to God. And everyone it represents, people who aren't even sitting there yet, people who aren't even there yet, God knows they're coming, and they matter to Him. And the question isn't, does every chair matter to God? The question is, does every chair matter to us? So today I'm encouraging you. This light that we've been given, this gospel of grace that we've been given, let's give it to somebody else. Take the shade off. 
Take it off and say, I'm on. I'm going to be on. I'm not going to be off. I'm going to be on. I'm not going to be halfway on. Some of us are like that dimmer light. How many of y'all know that dimmer light? Like, because you can just, you can turn it all the way up when certain people are around, and you can turn it all the way off when others aren't, right? And you can do halfway when you're around your lukewarm friends. Somebody say amen. Let's let the light shine. He said, how do we let the light shine? By, by our good works. Come on, by our good works. He, he didn't, we can't be saved by good works, but he saved us for good works. So when we're loving on people, when we're caring about people, when we're sharing, there's no better good work you can do than share the love and grace and goodness of God with somebody else. That's it. That's it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for being a part of the Summit Church podcast today. We pray that God used today's podcast to draw you closer to him. You can stay in the know at Summit by following us on social media. Thank you again for being a part. This is the Summit Church podcast.